Hi everyone, this is Caleb and welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. I am so grateful that you have decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today I am honored to be joined by Samuel James to talk with him about his brand new book, Digital Liturgies, Rediscovering Christian Wisdom in an Online Age. And uh, I guess I'll get into a little bit uh, later about why I'm uh, just very much looking forward to this conversation. But if this happens to be your first time, you know, listening to the Learner's Corner, I want to let you know that what we want to do here is create a safe place to have difficult conversations, to have conversations to where we don't necessarily agree or land on the same place and everything, but we can have respectful dialogue, that we can engage in different uh, conversations. And many of those conversations, you know, uh, involve uh, faith as well. But we really want this to be a place to where you can learn and grow and engage and just thoughtful dialogue and thoughtful conversation. And so if you find yourself on this lifelong journey of learning, uh, I would just, uh, you know, obviously subscribe to the podcast, but again, you could subscribe to my Substack as well. And each week I'm just giving three things that are currently making me think. And that could be anything from a quote to a movie, to music, to a podcast, to a book, literally, it's just anything that's that's making me think, anything that's uh, capturing and engaging my imagination in that. And, and really a, a big reason why is I know that it could be very difficult to find things that you recommend. That's a struggle for me as well, of just to find, continuing to find things that I want to continue to learn from and enjoy as well, which is why I send all that stuff and just make it a little bit easier for you. And again, just head to, over to Substack. Uh, in order to check all that stuff out. And in fact, today, what I'm talking with uh, Samuel about is is engaging in life uh, online and how that has a, a very formative perspective, uh, not perspective, how online content, how the, the internet can form us into something and how it is forming us as well. And we're going to get into... Uh, just, just a whole lot of other stuff. But let me tell you a little bit about Samuel and then we'll jump into the conversation. So Samuel D. James is the Associate Acquisitions Editor at Crossway and he is the author of Dig- Digital Liturgies, a regular newsletter on Christianity, technology, and culture and currently lives in Kentucky, Louisiana. Louisiana. Uh, that was a struggle. Louisville, Kentucky with his wife, Emily, and their three children. And without any further wait, here is our conversation. Well, Samuel, it is good to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today. Thanks, Caleb. I'm really glad to be here. Yeah. And, you know, just as we're getting started, one of the places uh, that I love beginning a lot of conversations uh, about people who have uh, done works of art, in your case, it's your book, Digital Liturgies, is I love hearing the origin story behind Mm -hmm. it. And so just as we're getting started, would you mind kind of telling me what led you to write uh, Digital Liturgies and some of the ideas around it? Absolutely. So I would say that the idea for this book um, kind of started in seed form around 2017, uh, specifically around the fallout of the 2016 elections and kind of the the next couple of years beyond that. 
Um, I, while I wasn't thinking of it in those terms yet, I think that was when I first started to notice that it seemed like m- me, myself, and people that I knew were kind of turning into different kinds of people and that there was a connecting tissue between uh, the changing way in which we would talk to and about each other, the changing way we would kind of talk about theology and our obligations as Christians, and these online spaces that we all tended to frequent. And and I could just tell that there was something going on, not having the words to articulate what that was. Uh, but I could just I could just tell that, that there was there there was change happening right in front of me, and I, I couldn't really um, tell what it was at that moment. But I, I knew that it it probably had something to do with with this technology. And so fast forward to 2020, and I'm sitting on my in laws' patio on a late summer evening, and I finish uh, Nicholas Carr's book, The Shallows: What the Internet Is Doing to Our Brains. Um, published in 2010. Uh, and Nicholas Carr in this book um, gave a robust kind of psychological and cognitive case for why the internet basically creates different kinds of readers, thinkers, um, and I would argue different kinds of Christians, even though he doesn't go there. He doesn't think about it in in spiritual terms, um, the categories that he laid out in that book from cognitive science, from um, literary studies, and from philosophy and media criticism, the the categories that he lays out uh, convinced me that this was what I was seeing in myself and in people close to me. This is the change I was seeing. It wasn't that everyone was a hypocrite and people were just one way in real life and one way on the internet. And, you know, there was, there was just no accounting for that. It was that we we were actually becoming different kinds of people uh, from practicing certain ways of thinking, reading, communicating online. Um, so with Nicholas Carr having given me that, the question I asked was, what are the theological implications of this research that he's presenting? Um, it seemed to me at the moment that it would have massive theological implications. And so as I read more books about uh, media criticism and about the internet and specifically the uh, the nature of the algorithm and the the stated goals of many of the corporations that have designed these, these technologies, um, I, I was just convinced that, that there was theological implications and that very few Christians were actually having explicit theological conversations about these uh, forms of technology. Uh, we were, we were very good at talking about content and, you know, not using the internet to view certain things or or do certain things, but we weren't really good about talking about form. And that's what Nicholas Carr was talking about was form. And and so that's kind of where the, the desire and the the framework emerged to, to make um, theology, science, technology, criticism uh, really talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about some of the ways or, that stood out to you of which we were changing because of the internet? Yeah. So for specific examples, so I, 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 I offer a few in the book and there's one part of the book where I, I kind of give a profile of two different people and these are real people. They're pseudonyms. They're um, 
those aren't their real names, but uh, I, I use a, a, a case study of, of two particular people that that I know in real life who are kind of at the opposite end of like the political spectrum. So one person is really conservative, homeschooling, you know, uh, very traditional family. The other person mm-hmm. is theologically to the left, politically to the left, um, you know, kind of opposite end of the spectrum in terms of instincts. But I've watched both of these people in real time, both people that I knew and had good relationships with, I've watched them adopt postures that were just not compatible with the kind of person that they were in offline life. So I would, I would literally have conversations with these people in real life where they were very humble, very kind, just wanting to talk about, you know, anything, how's life, just very approachable. And then in their online content, uh, they would be very black and white, very dogmatic, very unapproachable, very uh, aggressive and pugilistic in the way they talk about things. Um, And so that's, that's a case study that's in the book to kind of give a demonstration of, of that's one way I think a lot of people are observing um, the way this technology changes them. Another thing that I've noticed, and this was especially true in my own life, was the way that people, including me, seemed unable to track with really robust lines of argument. And instead, um, I found myself skimming books. I found myself kind of skimming articles, trying to get to the end or trying to just kind of get to the most quotable little bits. Um, I found myself kind of um, missing just obvious things in a train of argument um, because I was not thinking of it carefully. And, And so Nicholas Carr in his book, The Shallows, he actually argues that that is not just laziness on the part of the online reader. That's actually reading like the internet wants you to th- to read. It's thinking like the computer wants you to think. Um, and so, and so realizing that I, I just kind of felt that I was, I was misunderstanding people. They were misunderstanding me. We were talking past each other and it, it just felt like we weren't even in the same kind of logical world many times. Um, so that's, was, one more example, I think, of of realizing how these technologies have kind of inserted themselves between us and communication. Mm-hmm. Along those lines, one of the quotes, uh, or one of the things that you say in there that I want to quote and ask you about, uh, which really stood out to me, is you say, one of the reasons so few people can articulate the effects of the online world is that uh, few people have a baseline standard of human flourishing for comparison. And in that, I, w- I would love for you just to elaborate a little bit about like kind of what, what does that baseline um, of human flourishing look like? And and talk to me about how that is maybe being like eroded by some of the internet. I know mm. that we talked about some, but I'd love to have you just elaborate more on that. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So I, by, by human flourishing, I'm... I'm kind of just using it the way that it's typically used in Christian parlance. Uh, basically, the sense of wholeness, the sense of shalom, this sense that we as human beings created in the image of God are living in a way that is uh, at peace with the Lord, at peace with each other, and at peace with the world that he's made. It, it doesn't deny the effects of sin. It doesn't deny uh, the fact that we're all uh, fallen and corrupt and broken. But there is there is a design that God has given to his people 
um, that if we live according to this design, it it results in um, intact families, in uh, hearts that are at peace, and uh, work that is productive and fulfilling, and leisure that is genuinely restful and creative. Um, so that's kind of that's kind of this sense of human flourishing. And, and by kind of a baseline standard of human flourishing, I mean that it's pretty often the case as Christians that when we talk about kind of who we are as people or who we are as Christians, we we often tend to think of that wholly in terms of rules. So we think in terms of I do this, I'm not allowed to do that. Uh, I'm supposed to do, I'm supposed to be here. I'm supposed to go here. I'm supposed to listen to this. I'm not supposed to be here, go there, do that. Um, and so we tend to think that the essence of the Christian life, and I, I, this, you could call this a particular evangelical problem. You could call it a particular, uh, just American Christian problem, however you want to look at it. Uh, that kind of reductive view of the Christian life I think in a lot of cases, it kind of results in a least common denominator way of living life. So, so the question we ask when we think about, for example, the internet is not, okay, how is this actually resulting in um, more productive work or uh, more, more peace in my own spirit, more healthy relationships, uh, more restful leisure? The question we ask is, okay, just tell me what I'm not allowed to look at. And then I'll look at everything else, but I'll I'll avoid the bad stuff. Uh, and so again, it's the emphasis on content. We're very good about talking about content, but we're not good about talking about form. I think because the image of the life that we're supposed to have is tethered to mainly a list of do's and don'ts rather than, hey, there's actually, there, there's a way we're supposed to function as image bearers. And it's not supposed to be full of exhaustion, full of of tension and bitterness and rancor and confusion. Uh, it, it's not supposed to be that way. There's a there's a baseline of human flourishing that, that the Lord has laid out in scripture and especially the wisdom literature. And that's kind of what the, the book Digital Liturgies consults primarily is the wisdom literature. So sorry, that was a really long-winded answer to that first question. So, so your second question about specific ways in which the uh, like internet technology erodes that, um, I, I think one way it does is, is just friendship, right? So one of the things that becomes very clear, if you if you look at some of the literature coming out, uh, studies that are are being done about Gen Z and and um, um, the emerging generation beneath them, I'm, I'm blanking on the name that uh, Jean Twenge uses it's in Alpha. her book. Alpha, that's right, Alpha. Yeah. Her book was the first time I'd ever heard that generation called that, so I, I still still trying to catch on to it. Um, but if you, if you read her book, which is an amazing book, Gene Twenge Generations, highly recommend it. Uh, if you read that book, one of the things that becomes very obvious about Gen Z and Alpha is how lonely they are. I mean, they're extremely lonely and just kind of trapped in their own little um, cells of insecurity, anxiety, uh, depression, uh, isolation. So, so we're all extremely lonely. Well, Gene Twenge has been remarkably consistent over the years about, you know, she looks at the studies that have been done that that get this information from this, these generations. And it in about 2012 is when the trend line for teenage depression 
and anxiety and loneliness starts to, I mean, escalate Mm -hmm. exponentially. And of course, 2012 is a benchmark year for smartphone technology. By 2012, most of your adolescents in America have a smartphone. Most most people have it by then. iPhone comes out in 2008. By 2012, it's a, it's a common device. And so Twingy's argument, and this is the argument shared by Jonathan Haidt uh, at The Atlantic as well, is that this technology, there's clearly a correlation between widespread acceptance of this technology and these feelings of being alone and, and um, being very vulnerable and anxious. So I think that's one example in which uh, we have empirical data that suggests that the the ability to disappear into your own private digital world at any moment that you wish, any place that you wish, um, actually does quite a bit of harm to our sense of uh, relationships. It does quite a bit of harm to our desire and even our ability over time to reach out to another person. Um, and I think friendships are part of human flourishing. It's we're, we're social creatures. We're created. Uh, we're, we're born to other people. We're born into families. We're born into uh, communities. And as believers, we're born again into the church. Like there's an inescapable uh, communal aspect of who we are. And so human flourishing entails these relationships. And so you have this technology that we believe genuinely affects our our ability uh, in the long run to cultivate those relationships. So that's a really long answer, probably way more than you wanted. But but that's that's I think uh, when I talk about these ideas to people in settings, whether it's friends or people that I'm speaking to, kind of in a conference setting, um, I think this is where most people go. That they know something's wrong. They know something is disrupting this this kind of yeah. relational depth that they want to have. Uh, but many times they suspect it's technologically related, but they don't really have the language for it. So I hope, if nothing else, digital liturgies and, and the resources that I'm pulling from will give people the the language to describe what they're already feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I appreciate the length of the answers because on so, so many topics, this this topic especially, but in lots of topics, like we like for, I mean, it even, even goes back to what you were talking about with the shallows. We like the simple we like the short, the sweet, and all of that stuff. But some topics, you you need to engage in the nuance That's of right. it a little bit yeah. more. Um, you know, one of one of the things that you briefly touch upon, and it's another uh, path that is that is that technology can form us towards, is uh, you briefly mentioned transhumanism mm-hmm. as well. Would you mind kind of unpacking what that is and and how technology is shaping us down that path? Yeah, so transhumanism is is a little bit like Jello, like it's hard to nail to the wall, yeah. uh, partially because the term itself is very niche. Like you're not going to find a lot of people who just own that term and say, "Hey, I'm a transhumanist. What are you?" Um, but there is kind of this organized ideology around it, and in the book I cite from kind of the transhumanist declaration of principles, right? So this this uh, uh, document that was signed by transhumanist philosophers and thinkers. And so the the short version is that transhumanism is this philosophy of anthropology that says, if we can make our technology sophisticated enough, we can actually overcome the limits of our humanity. We can become something more than just human people. Uh, And so an example of that would be uh, uploading your consciousness to the cloud. So the transhumanists would say, uh, if we can find a way to kind of 
download the your brain, download the data in your brain into something that can be uploaded into a computer system, then we can capture your human consciousness and your consciousness can live on even after your brain functions have ceased. Um, and so there's conversation about this in, uh, particularly in, in technological circles about what are the ethics of preserving someone's, um, you know, cognitive data, uh, it, assuming you could get it downloaded after they die. What's, what's the, eth what does that mean about that person? Is that person living or dead or something else? Um, and so a transhumanist, a transhumanist looks at the world and says, um, I, I want to become one with the singularity. I want to escape the prison of my body because my body forces me to age. It, it forces me to sit in one place at a time. Uh, it, 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 my body puts all kinds of limits on me. And if I'm going to overcome those limits, I have to overcome my body. I have to, I have to understand myself that in, in terms, excluding my body, I'm, I'm a mind and a consciousness and I have to find a way to amplify my mind and consciousness in a way that overcomes the spatial limitations of my body. And one of the things that's remarkable is as you read the history of the internet, the World Wide Web in particular, the, the internet generally refers to just kind of the, the networking technology that any two computers can do. Uh, but the World Wide Web is kind of the, the information ecosystem that we all are familiar with. If you look at the history of the World Wide Web and the history of personal computing actually in general, um, there is quite a bit of transhumanist philosophy that's peddled among some of the chief players. So Steve Jobs was a, uh, an early enthusiast of something called the Whole Earth Catalog, which was um, this kind of vaguely new agey, but also vaguely transhumanist, uh, technological, utopian um, catalog that, that people who are interested in, in tech and gear, but also who are interested in kind of like this, um, this idea of achieving the singularity and escaping aging and bodily limitations. They were all into this. And Steve Jobs was a, was a big believer in this, as was Larry Page, co-founder of Google. So, so you have this, you have this kind of genetic history of the internet that is imprinted, if you will, with the, the values of transhumanism. And that makes sense, right? Because what the internet essentially is, is this, it's this ecosystem that allows us to be anywhere, to watch anything, to consume anything, to reach out to anyone, regardless of the of the world that we're actually in. I can overcome my bodily limitations, like like I'm doing right now. You and I are not in the same room. You and I are not, you know, sitting next to each other. We're we're overcoming our bodily limitations and the limitations of geographic space through the internet. And to point this out is not to say that it's intrinsically bad or intrinsically wrong, but it's also not to say it's not neutral. Uh, it it the fact that we can do this suggests to us that we should be able to do it. And so that's an example of the value system of the form of technology independent of the content. Mm -hmm. You know, one, one of the quotes uh, that you have, and then uh, I kind of want to shift towards talking about what, how, how can we form ourselves in, in, in a more uh, positive and, and Christ-like way is um, you say in the online age, our default is to lose touch with reality, which I think is such like, it's, it's a great s summary statement of it and really just made me think, I'd love for you to just elaborate. And we've already touched on some of them. What are some of the ways in which we are being formed to lose touch with reality by technology? So when I log on to the internet, 
as uh, we'll take social media as an example. Mm-hmm. When I log on to social media, I have the ability to craft this online profile. And the online profile is this very powerful thing because I can control what you see and know of me, right? I I have to self-disclose and I have an enormous amount of power over the self-disclosure. I can choose which picture I upload that represents me online. I can choose what I tell about myself. I can choose to share if I'm having a good day, bad day, neutral day. Um, I can I can edit and I can make myself look and sound better than I am. I can, you know, on Instagram, I can, you know, I can stage a photo of myself that looks like, oh my gosh, your life is so amazing. Like, how are you at the pool, you know, every day? And it's in fact, it's a highly, you know, staged photo. Um, I have that almost godlike ability to, to represent myself to you the way I want you to see me. And it's interesting because theologically, there is only one being in the universe whom we can only know through his self-revelation, and that's God, right? Only God has the absolute power to choose what we know about him. Only God is the one who we cannot know apart from what he chooses to disclose. And on the internet, what do I experience but a godlike feeling of authoritative self-revelation as I choose how you see me, uh, as I choose the parts of my personality that you that I want you to see, as I choose the parts of my life that I want you to see. Whereas in in offline life, if you, if you and I were to go out to dinner, I can't hide my body language from you. I can't hide my physical appearance from you. I can't hide the parts of, if you ask me, hey, like, you know, you seem upset or you seem really happy, what's going on? There's a, there's a whole body, a whole person reality that, I cannot hide from you. I I can't, I, I, I could, I could of course choose what I tell you, but there's a sense in which you are entering in to who I am in a very objective sense. That's not the case on social media. And so that's just one, I think, fundamental example of, of how the internet kind of distorts or disconnects us from reality. And in fact, enchants us with this, um, this, this opportunity that we can kind of create this, this new world, this new identity for ourselves, and we can control or, or uh, remake our, our own identity in the eyes of others. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in this broader topic, one of the things um, that I would just love your thoughts on is uh, AI as well, artificial intelligence. How, how do you see that playing into, you know, the, the distortion of reality, but even beyond that as well of how it's, how it's for, like, is it forming us differently? I, I don't know. I would just love your thoughts on that. Yeah. I I'm doing a lot of thinking about this these days because a lot of people have questions about it and I still have a lot of questions about it. I, I think we're only seeing kind of the, the first little like shark fin of, of what this technology is going to look like. So, so mm-hmm. it's still pretty early. I think my concerns with, with AI kind of, are, are just kind of a, a, a continuance of what we've been talking about. Um, it's a little troubling to me that we now have AI, po- popularly accessible AI, that can easily convince us that it's a person on the in- other end and, and not a computer, which it is. Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example. Uh, a colleague 
I was riding in a car with a colleague recently and he got out his phone and he said, have you, have you seen this app that lets you listen to any audio PDF in a voice of a bunch of celebrities? I said, what? He said, said, yeah. So all you have to do is upload a PDF to this app and then you choose if you want Snoop Dogg or uh, Obama or somebody. And if you you, you say, you know, I want to, I want to hear Snoop Dogg reading this paper that I wrote for school on the atonement or whatever. Uh, and so he played it for me and it was really good. Like it was, I mean, you know, if you listen to it super carefully, like you can catch that it's, you know, it's, there's problems with it. It doesn't sound super human. Uh, but at first blush, it, it sounds like Snoop Dogg is reading a paper that you wrote for a graduate class on theology or whatever. And so that's funny. And we all get a kick out of that, but it does raise the question of, what kind of world are we having to navigate when the the syntax, the voice, we have all the trappings of what makes a person a person and a computer is replicating that. So it, it's not hard to imagine that in the future, we're, we're, it's going to be very difficult to convince people that they shouldn't have an intimate relationship with an AI. Because, you know, if you've ever seen the movie Her with, with Joaquin Phoenix from several years ago, it really anticipated this. Like he, he plays this, this very lonely man who falls in love with this computer AI program. And this computer AI program is so sophisticated that it can kind of have these really intimate conversations with him. It can, it can give back to him just the way a real woman would. Um, but it's not. It's, it's not real. And so my, my question as we're considering like, should, you know, should we, should we use things like chat GPT to kind of help us do research and things like that? I don't have any dogmatic answers to any of that, but my, my question would be, are we, are we taking gradual steps away from reality when we, when we kind of entertain these technologies, when we avail ourselves of things that really blur the line between what is a human and what is a computer are we are we going in the direction of wisdom or are we taking a step away from it? Mm. Yeah, you even uh, mentioning wisdom in there reminds me of another quote that I would love to have you uh, just elaborate on. And you say the digital revolution's re- redistribution of information has led to much public knowledge, but much less public wisdom. And I was just uh, wondering if you could kind of tease out an example of how you've seen that be the case between we're getting a lot of public knowledge, but we're not necessarily getting a lot of wisdom in how to handle a situation. Ooh, yeah. Um, there's a lot to choose from. <laughs> so, okay. So at, at the risk of maybe stepping into it, uh, you know, we just came out of what was essentially a maybe a two year period of a public health emergency across the world where, um, you know, it was extremely disorienting, unprecedented from, from almost all of us. Um, and one of the things that was evident, especially as COVID was, was kind of in its um, most violent stage was that the sheer accessibility of all this information kind of created this social hierarchy. And, and so the people who were at the top of the social hierarchy were the people who were, were 
obviously in the know all the time. And so these people had like really strong opinions about, hey, I, I think I think this particular vaccine is 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 bad for you because this is this is this. I I think this particular uh policy is bad because of this, this, and this. Um and so I, I'm not trying to to kind of make a statement about how that conversation yeah. went down, but I I think regardless of of where you kind of identify on the political spectrum, the pandemic was a great example of how everybody having an internet connection, everybody being able to Google and everybody having kind of their own public voice, whether it was a Twitter profile, a blog, or, you know, an Instagram account, uh, everybody kind of having their own public voice, it kind of created this uh, it, it didn't really create a symphony of knowledge. It created this kind of cacophony of opinion. It was, it wasn't like everybody was kind of getting the best information and processing it in the best way. And like, there was just super reliable uh, things that were coming out. It was, you logged onto your social media account and literally one friend was saying, this will literally kill you. Another friend was saying, if you do this, you are an enemy of, you know, Christians or the church. Like it was, it, people had the had the access to the same technology, but it wasn't creating this sense of, hey, like you and I can see the same thing. Like we're we're kind of working toward a consensus here. It was just it was just an explosion of differing voices shouting at each other. Um, so I mean, that right there is an example of. And I don't want people to hear this to say like, hey, we'd be better off if nobody had a public platform. Like we'd be better mm -hmm. off if if nobody could actually Google. I, I don't believe that at all. But yeah. I do believe that when information kind of becomes radically democratized and you give people uh, access to just to, to literally infinite amounts of information and research and you untether the discovery of that information from kind of the the credential disciplines that have that have been handed down over years in terms of hey this is how you understand this this is how you learn this you go to school you get a degree you uh, you know you apprentice you learn how to do something when when that information access becomes untethered from from institutions from these practices and it just becomes this this cyber world a fact then I think that's what you're going to end up with. You're going to end up with basically competing universes, competing mm -hmm. conceptions of reality going at it against one another. And I think I think we saw a lot of damage to uh, to relationships, to institutions, uh, and you know ultimately a lot of damage to the credibility of people and governments during COVID, partially because. Uh, access to information was so democratized like that. So, I mean, that's one radical example and yeah. there, there are other smaller examples, but I think, I think a lot of people still think, you know, I, I, I it was just hard navigating yeah. those couple of years where everybody seemed to have an opinion and, and there was just no, no stop to the amount of information. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to read one other quote that you have, to kind of like give give another perspective to the challenge that we've been talking about. And then I, I want to dive into um, how, how do we go about discerning all of this and being wise in these situations. But uh, you say one of the intrinsic challenges that the internet poses to clear uh, precise thinking is the way it bundles the social with the intellectual. Can you talk about the social component and even, even just figuring out what to do in these situations and how it blends with our, with our intellect? 
Yeah. So in, in Nicholas Carr's book, uh, The Shallows, he talks about how um, reading, so like reading a reading a book or reading a reading something analog, reading something, you know, kind of print based. Um, it, it's kind of its own unique cognitive experience because the in, you know, for much of human history, um, there was no access to like an actual physical codex. You had to, you had to learn in oral style. You had to, or, or else like access to, to individual print products was impossible or very rare with, with the advent of the printing press, you have, according to Nicholas Carr, you have the creation of this kind of reader experience where a reader has a, a book, a, a paper, that's making some kind of claim and they can kind of experience the argument of this uh, print product in a singular way. Like they can kind of process the process, what's being said, they can make notes in the marginalia, they can kind of interact and it becomes kind of this, this cohesive end to end experience of, I read something, I considered it, I thought about it. I came away with this evaluation of it. What's it, what's different about the age of the internet is not only that computer reading is intrinsically uh, less thoughtful, more shallow than uh, analog reading, which he makes the case for, but also that social media has kind of created a a social currency out of what you what you think. So, uh, so there was this one experiment that was done, and and it was in an article in the New York Times several years ago. Uh, but they they gave two groups of people uh, the same the same essay the same article, and one group could only see the essay. They could only see the content of the essay. The other group was showed the comment section, and the comment section on this particular essay was very negative. Uh, it was very combative toward the author. What they found was that the the people who were given the just the essay and the people who were given the comment section and the essay had radically different views about what the content even said like they summarized it differently because the comments had kind of created a almost a pre-rational impression that they brought to the text and so they filtered their own thoughts through this kind of social um matrix so to speak and so that's kind of the power of of the social on the internet uh and and we've we've all done this we've all we've all seen a social media post that we weren't sure about we go you kind of read that and you're like i'm not sure like I, it's not clearly wrong but I'm, I'm not sure and then we read the replies if we find someone in the replies that we trust who is liking it, then that changes our perception of it for the better. If we find someone that we distrust liking it, what do we do? We say, well, obviously this is wrong because yeah. look at that, look at what that person yeah. is doing and that we can't trust that person. Um, so, so that's an example of how the work of evaluating a truth claim and the dynamics of belonging to a group, of identifying with a certain person, of wanting approval. Um, that's an example of how those two dynamics are at odds with each other many times. Um, 
in the in the book i quote c.s lewis's essay the inner ring and lewis talks about how the desire to the inner ring the desire to be part of an inner ring like part of this kind of um influential cabal and this sense of belonging that you get from kind of separating from the rest of the crowd and joining this kind of inner room he said that is really effective at making a person who's not a bad person into a bad person uh, because the motivation to kind of keep the approval coming. And we've, we've, we've seen this, we've seen this in our own lives. We've seen this in the lives of people that we, we know we've seen people uh, change their views because they saw that when they said certain things, they got certain kinds of feedback. And when they said other things, they got a different kinds of feedback. And so they're chasing that. And we all do this, right? We're chasing that approval process. And and one of the things that it's interesting, and I'll, I'll end the answer here, yeah. is that in, in the book of John, Jesus is confronted by a group of religious leaders who obviously don't believe him. They're rejecting him. And Jesus says something really interesting. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and not the glory that comes from the only God. Jesus is saying you, the glory you receive from one another is actually an obstacle to your recognizing the truth of who I am. And I think that's true. That's definitely true with when it comes to the Lord. That's true of, of a lot of things. Uh, the approval that we crave from other people is actually an obstacle to thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I want to, as uh, you know, as we're kind of winding down the conversation a little bit. I want to talk about the formation uh, process because you've you've alluded to it and even said it so much in this is that technology and really so so many things in our life are are forming us towards something. I'd love to hear what helps you almost like discern like what you're being formed to or like almost figure out like okay if I'm going down this path and if, if I'm using technology in this way this is what I'm being formed to if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's a very important question. I, I really think and and people kind of people kind of groan when you say this and they're like, oh yeah, we know, but give us something practical. I really believe that the people around us are the ones that kind of have the quickest and probably the most accurate sense of how we're being formed by uh, these digital liturgies. And I, I, there's five of them in the book. And no matter no matter no matter who you are, no matter what what kind of person you are or what or you know what your particular kind of personality or proclivities are one of these five digital liturgies applies to you like this we all have our besetting temptations one of them is going to apply one or more of them is going to apply to you and i i think the reason that this is an urgent thing in terms of the internet's kind of separating us from relational, from deep relational bonds is that it it's those relational bonds that actually exhort us to wisdom. That's, that's, that's the Lord's primary means other than his word is of, of kind of helping us see what's happening to us. Like if, if I'm sliding into patterns of thinking and feeling that are destructive, then probably the most reliable way to know that is to ask someone that's actually really close to me and can see into my life honestly and say, do you see this in me? Where do you see this in my life? Um, And so I think personal formation happens with, with other people and it doesn't happen. I want to emphasize this. It doesn't happen with a list of followers. It happens with people who are actually invested enough in us 
and us with them to say hard things and to observe hard things. It's not for pe- not with people who are impressed with us, but people who love us. And that's two very different things. Um, and then also, I think practically speaking, I, I think one of the ways that we can uh, we can kind of detect where we are on this is if we just unplug maybe for a weekend. It's amazing how effective that is at clarifying. Uh, you know, we step away from social media for a couple of days or even maybe longer than that, a week. And I have I have found in my own life and I've talked to so many people who say, if I take a break for a few days and I try to come back, it all seems toxic. It all seems really unwise. The kinds of behaviors that I was immersed in. And then I took a break and now I can kind of see how absurd it is. Um, and I think that's just part of the plausibility nature of the internet, that this is an ecosystem that while we're immersed in it, it makes all of this feel plausible. And then we we take ourselves out even for a couple of days and then it comes back and, and it, it it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound normal anymore until we kind of re-immerse ourselves in it and then it sounds normal. So to just remind ourselves that it's, it's not normal to live this way um, and just pulling out of it for for little stretches of time. And I, you know, the Lord gave us a Sabbath uh, in his word, uh, one, one day a week to withdraw from kind of our normal earthly rhythms so that I think his word would stay normal to us. And it wouldn't feel normal to, to think and to live and to relate to others as if he didn't exist. So he pulls us back to himself. He pulls our attention back to himself one day a week. And I, I think if we apply that principle to, to our use of technology, we would, we would feel the refreshment and the, the grounding and wisdom that it would bring. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned uh, some of the liturgies in the book. Is there one in particular that really uh, stands out or that resonates with you right now in this season? I would say probably digital liturgy number five, which is uh, meaninglessness. Uh, and I, it's, it, it might be my favorite chapter title in the book, uh, yeah. death by minutia. Uh, yeah. And man, I, I you know, w- whenever you say death by minutia, I feel like most people like they, they perk up and they know exactly what you're talking about. It's, yeah. it's death by a thousand notifications, death by a million emails, um, I, I am just like, even, even today, like I would, I just, I was confronted with, if you want to be distracted, you can be distracted every day, all day for the rest of your life. Like there is so much minutia. There's so much that just doesn't matter. And whether this is like some random video on YouTube or whether it's like a, a fight going on in the replies of a, of a social media post, you still, it feels so important when you're on there and then you step away for barely half a minute and you're like, this is literally a waste of life. Like we are wasting our life doing this because it, it has no meaning. It has no significance outside of this little, um, this, this tiny little technological box. Uh, and so, yeah, that one in particular, I think the other four are ones that, um, uh, you know, outra- outrage, um, shame, um, consumption, uh, authenticity. I I think those are ones that kind of Christians are worldview primed a little bit to detect. And we're, we're kind of on the lookout. The minutia one is the one that sneaks up on us. 
The one, yeah. the minutia one is the one that kind of comes behind. And you know what, Caleb, this is true too. The minutia one is the one that's really effective at dragging us back into the other four. Mm. Like if the other four kind of are blocked by our worldview filter, number five is what comes back and kind of drags us back down into the number four before we even realize what's happening. So yeah, I, yeah. I think I think the the liturgy of meaninglessness of of just suffocation by content is is very live to me right now. Yeah. Well, I got one other question I want to ask yet, but before that, I always love just uh, asking and kind of throwing out there, is there anything, and we could go in a lot of different directions with this, but is there anything that we haven't mentioned tied to the book or just the conversation that you want to make sure that we mentioned before the end of our conversation? Yeah. So I, I think when I've talked to people about this book, I think a lot of people are uh, very aware of the things I'm describing and they're eager for, for, for wisdom on this. Um, and I, I think, I think it's really starts with the Lord's word. So, you know, I, I kind of classify that as permanent words, like God's given us permanent words in an, in an age of very ephemeral, impermanent words. And that is just a rock to stand on, uh, in a world where there's just so much radical change. So really it, it starts and ends with, with God's word kind of forming anew the bedrock of how we think and feel. Uh, and then also the church, I uh, go to church. Like that's, <laughs> that's kind of what I want to tell people. Like yeah. if, in order to, in order to push back against these digital liturgies, you're going to have to rediscover the joy, the, 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 the transparency, the honesty, the humility, and also the, the work of real relationships of real, um, support and mutual love for other people who are right there, not just people who are projected far away. Um, so those are two of the things recovering yeah. this, recovering the scripture as a live uh, thing in our daily lives, and then seeking out other Christians in the local church. Uh, I think all kind of all practical wisdom and pushback starts there. Yeah. Well, this kind of goes along with what you were saying, but I was just thinking, you know, in this and we've talked about it several times, but in this age of like, there's a lot of information and in this age of shallowness, as we refer to, what what would your advice for us to becoming people of who have more wisdom or people of wisdom and people of uh, greater depth? Yeah. I would say, first of all, read scripture, right? And don't, don't just read it to, to be able to spout it off. Like, like really understand it, like uh, meditate on it. I had a, had a, professor at seminary say, um, if you only have 20 minutes to read scripture, read five minutes worth of scripture and do 15 minutes worth of meditation. And I, I that was a really insightful point uh, because I think most of us tend to gravitate toward uh, quantity rather than quality. But his point was that, you know, meditate, drive it down into your soul and let, let the word have its effect on the way you think. Um, and then in terms of, in terms of how we become wise people, I think, I think a big part of that is really selecting what we pay attention to very carefully. So the, the social media fights, the, the trends that we see online, the, the panicky type of, of content that just sells so well, that's really kind of, that's, that's like, a candy bar to the attention span, right? It's, it's, mm -hmm. it goes down smooth. It tastes good. It's just, it gives you a rush of sugar. Um, but it, but then, you know, <laughs> 30 minutes after the candy bar, you're like, I got to take a nap. You know, it just wears you out. These kinds of attention, 
sucking resources just just kind of wear us out. And so if we pay close attention, if we pay closer attention to the things that matter, and by things that matter, I'm not saying never read online. I do a lot of writing online. I I believe in that as a medium, as a resource for writing. But but should we should we gravitate toward kind of reading what people will scribble online or should we read, should we gravitate towards what people are willing to invest months and years of their lives in, in books? Are we willing to listen to people who have uh, experience and a record of godliness rather than kind of the latest influencer who tells us what we want to hear and, and, you know, does a really good job putting down people we don't like. Um, it, can we pay attention? Can we steer our attention toward the kind of things that will last and will mean something 20 years from now, not stuff that we'll forget tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Well, Samuel, I know that people are going to want to pick up your book, Digital Liturgies, and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things? Yeah, so you can pick up the book right now at crossway.org. Uh, they'll, they'll ship it out right now, and then it releases on Amazon on September 5th. Uh, and then in terms of my own writing, I'm at Substack. The Substack is called Digital Liturgies. Um, so would be grateful for anyone to follow me there. Yeah. Well, and by the time that this episode is out, the book is out. So you could go get the book. Great. That's, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, Samuel, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Just thanks for doing the work and for sharing it with us. Thanks, Caleb. Appreciate it. So coming out of that conversation with Samuel, it actually makes me think of this this story, this quote that is actually found in uh, Samuel's book, Digital Liturgies, but it's from David Foster Wallace. And and you may be familiar with this as well, but he, but he shares this fictional story and he says that there were uh, two young fish who were swimming in the ocean and eventually an older fish greets them and he says, hello boys, how's the water? And then the two fish you know, the two younger fish, they look at each other, they're confused, and then they ask, you know, what's water? And David Foster Wallace goes on and, and he says this, The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. He goes on and says, 20 years after my own graduation, I have come gradually to understand that the liberal arts cliche about teaching you how to think is actually shorthand for a much deeper, more serious idea. Learning how to think really means learning how to exercise some control over how and what you think. It means being conscious and aware enough to choose what you pay attention to and to choose how you construct meaning from experience. Because if you cannot exercise this kind of choice in adult life, you will be totally hosed. End of quote. And that makes me think of just what we were talking about in the conversation. That technology, that online, is shaping us towards something. It is forming us towards something. How is it forming you? How? What ways are you being formed in that image? And thinking about it, for those of us who are followers of Jesus... Is it making us more loving? Is it forming us in a path towards love? Is it forming us in patience? Is it forming us in kindness? Is it forming us in self-control? Is it forming us in joy? 
and paying attention to whether or not it's not and then responding accordingly and figuring out with, okay, is that the type of person that I want to be? And how do I form myself into that person? How do I, what practices and habits do I need to implement in order to become that person and, and work with really what the spirit is trying to do in my life. So that's really the big thing that it just got me thinking about it, paying attention to how we're being formed and not necessarily the content as Samuel mentioned earlier. So if you enjoyed this episode, please again, just subscribe to my Substack, you know, and you'll just get bunches of recommendations of some of the things that I'm thinking about from quotes like the one that I just said to uh, books and movies and videos and songs and literally just anything that is just engaging uh, my imagination and, and a lot of the things that I'm enjoying as well. And again, it's three things every single week comes to you each Monday. And so that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you for listening uh, to this episode of the podcast. Thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Samuel for being on the podcast as well. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.